Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 202, A Wild West Vibe. Since Alexius Komnenos came to power in 1081, our narrative has been consumed by the wars he fought against Robert Giscard's Normans. Four years of relentless campaigning kept the emperor occupied and unable to do anything about the collapse of imperial power in Anatolia. Two years on from Giscard's death, the Pechenegs will move south and begin attacking Roman Thrace, prompting another four years of hard military life for Alexius. Even those wars will not bring peace to the Balkans, and Komnenos will be forced to campaign further against threats old and new. All of this to say that Alexius would spend 12 of his first 15 years on the throne fighting in his European provinces, leaving him very little time to do anything proactive about the crisis in Anatolia. Next week, we're going to cover the rest of Alexius's wars in Europe. Today, we're going to focus on the East. Anatolia was in a state of flux, and though the emperor couldn't be there in person, there was still much work to be done. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that Alexius's arm-length diplomacy isn't going to succeed, and that what you're about to hear forms much of the Anatolian prelude to the First Crusade. The last time we actually covered developments east of the Bosphorus was back in episode 195, when the government finally abandoned attempts to fight in Anatolia. As you may recall in the wake of the Battle of Manzikert, Turkic tribes had begun to settle down on the Anatolian plateau. The climate and flora were similar to their steppe homelands, and the Roman government's attempts to eject them were easily defeated. Although the Turks enjoyed sacking rich Roman cities, they were not initially aiming at conquest. The plateau was an extension of the grasslands that ran all the way back to Azerbaijan and beyond. Anatolia was just a new place to graze their herds, with the added advantage that it was a long way from Baghdad. The tribes and the Seljuk authorities were always locked in conflict, 
both needing one another, but with opposing senses of how much control the sultan should have over their daily life. It was the Romans themselves who inadvertently encouraged the tribes to begin the process of forming an actual state in Anatolia. As we discussed in episode 200, various Byzantine leaders came to the Turks with money to help them fight their civil wars. This encouraged the tribes to coalesce around one leader who could secure them these lucrative assignments. And once the Romans gave them control of their fortified cities, well, now they had the infrastructure to begin forging an organised kingdom. The process I've just described is why, by 1081, when Alexius took power, the largest concentration of Turkic settlers was around the western edge of the plateau. This put them in touch with Constantinople, and it's the area from which both Votaniates and Melisinos launched their bids for the throne. We're going to take a quick tour of Anatolia to give you a sense of what was happening, and we'll start here. These are the lands of the former Obsikion theme, and the western part of the Anatolikon. This area also includes many ancient maritime cities like Pergamum, Sardis, and Ephesus. A large number of towns in this region were now under Turkish control. When the Romans handed these towns over to Turkic garrisons, they did so under the assumption that it would be relatively easy to get them back. The Turks had no home here. These garrisons weren't going to stand and fight to the death. They would just follow the money. So once the empire's financial crisis had been sorted and an imperial army took the field in Asia again, these garrisons would stand aside. That train of thought did not anticipate several key developments, including the severity of the financial crisis, the fact that the imperial army would be bogged down in Europe for the next 15 years, and that in the meantime a Turkish state would form which would give those garrisons ample reason to stay put. Under these circumstances, it was only a matter of time before someone seized overall control of the tribes of western Anatolia. That man was Suleiman, son of Kutlamush. Kutlamush was the cousin of Alp Arslan, the sultan who had been victorious at Manzikert. Kutlamush had challenged his cousin for the throne and been defeated. In the aftermath, his sons had fled to the Armenian mountains to escape retribution. Suleiman had made his way into Anatolia and used his position as a recognisable Seljuk noble to forge contacts with Constantinople. This was the danger that the Byzantines failed to observe. Although Suleiman was leading steppe tribes, he did not have a tribal mentality. He saw Anatolia as his escape from the clutches of Baghdad and an opportunity to build a power base of his own. It was Suleiman who helped Votaniates gain the throne. It was Suleiman who provided the muscle for Melisinus's bit two years later. And who do you think was supplying Alexius with all his Turkish mercenaries during the Norman Wars? Suleiman. Suleiman's state is known to us as the Sultanate of Rum, meaning Rome. In order to establish his new position, he took the title of Sultan, and then looked for a strong fortress from which to secure his person and administer his realm. And that's where Nicaea came in. Nicaea is the first major city you would come to if travelling east from Constantinople. 
It was a famous Christian shrine, being the site of the first ecumenical council, and it had formidable defences, both its thick Roman walls and its location next to a lake which provided a further obstacle to assault. Nicaea now became Suleiman's capital, and just the kind of fortress that would give his fledgling state a real sense of permanence. No Turkic force could easily have captured the city. Instead, it seems to have been handed over to the Sultan. Whoever was responsible for that decision had made a serious mistake. Traditionally, the blame is given to the Caesar, Nicephorus Melissinos, though some wonder if Votanyates had handed it over even earlier in proceedings. And then there are those who point to Alexius himself. I mentioned briefly at the start of the Norman Wars that in order to secure a steady supply of mercenaries, Alexius had made peace with Suleiman, endorsing his claims to govern the land he'd taken and essentially leaving the Romans of Anatolia to fend for themselves for the time being. Historians like Peter Frankopan argue that Nicaea was the price of peace. Nicaea was such a well-defended site just a few days' march from the Bosphorus, that even without its religious significance, handing it over to the Turks was a distinctly embarrassing act to have on one's record. When you factor in that the first target of the First Crusade will be Nicaea, it becomes even more uncomfortable to admit that it was you who handed it over to the enemy in the first place. Anna lays the blame squarely at Melisinos's feet, but then she would, if she was protecting her father, wouldn't she? However, several other historians are pretty convinced that it was Melisinos. Regardless, thanks to this act of generosity slash stupidity, Sultan Suleiman was now comfortably ensconced inside. He did not have complete control over the tribes of western Anatolia, but he was clearly the man to go to if disputes arose or you needed a payday. Most of our narrative today is going to focus on events at Nicaea, but let's just complete our tour so that you have a clearer picture of what's going on. If you've got the impression that all of Anatolia has been lost and the Turkic tribes control everything, then you've been misled. Along the coasts, at least, many port towns were still fully incorporated into the imperial system. If they had strong walls and maintained their ships, then they had a good chance of keeping their traditional way of life. Suleiman's Turks had now made major inroads into the cities of the west coast, but along the Black Sea and Mediterranean littorals, imperial rule clung on. Where there were mountains to separate you from the Turks, Roman rule had an even better chance of survival. This included Trebizond in the northeast and Cilicia in the southeast. Up to this point, the general Philaritos Vrachamios still controlled an impressive block of territory centred on Cilicia, including major cities like Melitene, Edessa and Antioch. And though he nominally ruled them for the emperor, he was practically independent. It was on the plateau itself that imperial authority had ceased to function, though that doesn't mean that there were no Romans in charge anymore. The plateau had become the grazing land of the Turkish tribes, but there were many Romans still living there, 
Peasants with no protection would have to come to whatever terms they could with the new arrivals. But those living in towns locked the gates and either resisted or paid protection money. Suleiman's Turks, as you know, dominated the western rim of the plateau. The other major area of Turkic settlement was at the eastern edge. Here, three distinct tribal groups dominated the route leading out of Anatolia into the Armenian mountains. The Danishmans occupied the major cities of Cappadocia. Beyond them, another tribe dominated the lands around Kamacha and Tefriki, and even further on, another group had captured Theodosiopolis. It's worth saying that either side of these tribes, Caucasian and Armenian rulers, continued to dominate local life. The Turks only controlled the pathways which their herds could easily navigate. Life in Anatolia had become chaotic, and political and economic dealings had distinctly local flavours. The Turkic tribes would move back and forth across the plateau with their herds, cooperating and fighting with one another as they would have done back on the steppes. The settled peoples had to accommodate them as best they could. Nomads require both farmers and townsfolk to trade with, and some of these interactions were violent, but many would have been peaceful. Obviously, it depends on time and place and local conditions. In some areas, the tax system continued to function, with proceeds simply being handed over to the tribes. In others, protection money may have been paid in cash or kind to keep the horsemen at a safe distance. Throughout this period, Anatolia has a vibe of the Wild West about it with locals having to make their own arrangements for defence and trade in the absence of imperial authority. In fact, when the Crusaders arrive, one writer describes a scene straight out of a western, with the Crusaders playing the part of the cavalry, arriving in the nick of time to save a beleaguered Roman town. That is how things stood around the time of Alexius's ascension and the start of the Norman Wars. As we saw throughout those campaigns, the Roman army now depended on Turkish mercenaries to give it some striking power. You may remember that Alexius hired 7,000 nomads for the battle at Larissa that finally saw the Byzantines emerge victorious. Across those four years, then, the alliance between Alexius and Suleiman seems to have been fruitful. Over in Anatolia, though, big developments were taking place. In traditional imperial fashion, Alexius had sent honours and titles to Philaritos Vrachamios at Antioch. Even though this gave the emperor no actual control over the region, nor one penny of its tax revenues, the idea was to keep such potentates within the imperial framework so that one day they could be reincorporated into the empire. The need for this diplomatic window dressing was underlined when reports reached Alexius around 1084 that Philaritos was considering converting to Islam. Vrakamios was now surrounded on all sides by hostile Turkish powers, with no help coming from Constantinople, he looked to Baghdad for confirmation of his position and protection against encroachment. 
We don't know how serious talk of conversion was, but the general had no choice but to listen to any terms offered to him by the sultan. The danger for Alexius was if Baghdad laid claim to this collection of Roman cities. The Seljuks had shown little interest in following up their victory at Manzikert, but if Filaritos went over to their side, how long until those cities were occupied by Seljuk forces? If that happened, then it seemed unlikely the Romans would ever recover them. This was the game now for Constantinople, to keep up the appearance of Roman authority for as long as possible, in the hopes that their situation would improve and they could actually do something about it. Anna tells us that Philaritos's son was outraged by his father's decision to convert and raced west to get help. He didn't go to Constantinople, though. He went to Nicaea. Suleiman promptly marched east and captured Antioch. This was headline news around the region. Antioch dwarfed even Nicaea for religious significance and defensibility, and suddenly Suleiman was in control of both. There is a lively historical debate about what was going on here. Historian Peter Frankopan draws the conclusion that this was not an independent incident amongst the leading men of Anatolia, but that Alexius authorised his ally Suleiman to take Antioch for him, keeping the city within the Byzantine orbit. He cites the fact that there was no siege, Suleiman was welcomed into the city, along with Philaritos's son, and Vrachamios's kingdom fell apart almost instantly, Men carrying Byzantine court titles seized Edessa, Melitene, and the surrounding fortresses. Evrachamios was left only with Germanicia, where he died two years later. But did Alexius really give the order for Suleiman to capture Antioch, or was this a case of accepting the best of a bad situation, rather than allow vital interests to fall into Baghdad's hands? Suleiman's behaviour leads me to believe he was acting in his own interests and not those of the emperor. After capturing the city, the sultan drove off tribal elements who'd been preying on the locals, but then he followed this up by attempting to capture Aleppo. This was a massive provocation to the Seljuk authorities who had been battling with the Fatimids for control of the key Syrian city. It seems more likely that Suleiman was trying to get back in the game. If he'd captured Aleppo, he would now be a major player in Seljuk politics, a position his family had lost when his father had been defeated by Alp Arslan. In the summer of 1085, while Alexius was preparing for Giscard's final invasion, Suleiman was killed in battle on the road between Antioch and Aleppo. His army was scattered by the forces of Tutush, half-brother of the Sultan of Baghdad. Tutush marched forward and seized Antioch. If that wasn't bad enough, when this news reached Nicaea, Suleiman's deputy immediately broke his treaty with Alexius and began attacking Roman land on the coasts of Anatolia. Komnenos therefore had very little time to celebrate his victory over the Normans. The news flooding in from Anatolia was all bleak, as one town after another succumbed to Turkish assault. Alexius had a brief window between the end of the Norman Wars and the start of his conflict with the Pechenegs to give Anatolia some attention. 
troops were dispatched to defend the Asian shore opposite Constantinople, but that was about all the empire could reasonably hope to do. Alexius knew at this stage that he didn't have the army to take on the Turks, nor to capture walled cities. What he needed was an ally in Anatolia he could rely on, someone who would at least prevent the situation from getting any worse. He had mixed emotions, though, when, in the summer of 1086, a most unexpected offer of help arrived. Envoys came to court representing the Sultan of Baghdad. Malik Shah was offering to drive the Turks out of Anatolia on Alexius's behalf, and all he wanted in return was Antioch and a marriage alliance. As you probably remember, Alp Arslan was extremely generous to the Romans in the wake of the Battle of Manzikert. He treated Romanos Theoyenis with great care, and captured only those border fortresses which would secure his hold on the Armenian mountains. Now his son, Malik Shah, was sending equally generous terms to an emperor in desperate need of help. But why would the Sultan want to clear Anatolia for the Romans? Although the Seljuks controlled much of the former caliphate, their military power was dependent on the steppe tribes who they'd dragged in their wake. These tribes had to be constantly cowed and brought within the tent to obey the rule of Baghdad. The string of Turkic statelets forming inside Anatolia were a potential source of danger to the Sultan. As we discussed in episode 200, the Turks in Anatolia provided armies for hire for a string of Roman usurpers, but they were equally capable of marching east and providing vital manpower for the Sultan's enemies. In fact, Malik Shah was very suspicious of the growing power of Tutush over in Antioch, and was particularly concerned to put an end to the Sultanate at Nicaea. That was just the sort of independent power base that could threaten his control of the nomads, as we just saw with Suleiman's attempt to capture Aleppo. Interestingly, the Sultan was proposing that Alexius's daughter, our historian Anna, should be sent to marry his son. Anna says that Alexius laughed at the very thought, God's vice-regent handing over his own child to the heathens. But then she would want to believe that, wouldn't she? To be fair to her, though, it would have been an unthinkable act of public relations within the Christian world, even if you ignore the genuine concern for her soul. Alexius would engage in negotiations with Baghdad for several years, though, sending generous gifts and hoping that some kind of agreement could be reached. And during this time, tribesmen along the Black Sea coast did hand a couple of towns back to the Romans when ordered to by the envoys. This was an encouraging sign of the Sultan's reach, but Alexius remained anxious about encouraging a Seljuk army to march on Nicaea. They had already taken Antioch from him. What if their intentions were not so noble after all? In 1087, Malik Shah marched in force into Armenia. The Sultan himself would turn south and take Antioch from Tutush. But he sent a significant force into Anatolia to discipline the tribes operating around the plateau. With the Seljuk army making for Nicaea, the new leader there, Abul Qasim, 
began gathering his forces for its defence. Alexius took the opportunity to dispatch small contingents to the coastal cities that the Turks had recently taken. Kizikos, Apollonius, and other towns were re-garrisoned, and several Turkish commanders accepted bribes and crossed the Bosphorus to be converted and given new positions in the Byzantine army. Alexius also extended an olive branch to Abu Qasim himself. The new sultan of Rum was determined to resist the army coming from Baghdad, but in view of their strength, he acquiesced to reinstating the old alliance with Byzantium. Alexius's logic seems to be that of classic Roman statecraft. If he backed the invading army, there was a good chance that Seljuk power would extend all the way to the Bosphorus. Malik Shah was sincere in his desire to return Anatolia to the Romans, but how much control did Malik Shah really have? What was to stop the general he sent to Nicaea from setting up shop there? What was to stop the next leader of Baghdad from deciding that Anatolia would make a nice new province? It made more sense to back the weaker party. Abul Qasim had every incentive to keep hold of Nicaea. No fate other than death awaited a man who'd defied Baghdad. Perhaps he could be persuaded to become the new Suleiman, to stop attacking Roman towns in Anatolia and to maintain the peace. The dream in these scenarios is that one day, internal politics would open a door for the Romans to sneak a garrison into Nicaea and recover the city without spilling blood. Abul Qasim actually travelled to Constantinople while the Seljuk army was crossing the plateau and was wined and dined in fine style. He was put on the payroll and sent home with a contingent of Byzantine troops in tow. They would garrison a neighbouring castle rather than being allowed into the city, but it was a start. The Seljuk force did reach Nicaea, but after a short stay, they packed up and went home. The city was too well fortified to be intimidated. Alexius continued to negotiate with both sides, hoping to find a diplomatic route to the restoration of Roman power. Though Constantinople and Nicaea were temporarily at peace, nothing stood still in Anatolia. At some point during the last few years, the Turks had succeeded in capturing the city of Smyrna. Smyrna was on the west coast of Anatolia, with an excellent port on the Aegean. The man in charge of the city, known to us as Chaka, now began operating independently of Nicaea's authority. He persuaded the locals to build him a fleet and began capturing Aegean islands and port cities. This caused huge anxiety in Constantinople. Their control of the sea was holding the empire together, and so this challenge had to be met head-on. When initial attempts to retake Chios and Lesbos failed, the news caused panic. The governors of both Crete and Cyprus went into revolt. As we'll talk about over the next couple of episodes, Alexius's government were having to turn the screw on their own people. Putting armies into the field every year was hugely expensive, and given the debasement of the coinage and the loss of Anatolia, the only way to keep revenues coming in was to brutally crack down on tax evasion. So the people of Crete and Cyprus were not just 
reacting in panic to the news that a Turkish fleet was in the waters, they were using this as an opportunity to throw off the shackles of the hated tax collectors. The threat of a naval rival in the Aegean was taken very seriously at the capital, particularly when Chaka made contact with the Pechenegs and tried to coordinate a blockade, an incident we'll talk about in detail next week. By 1092, Alexius had found the money to outfit a suitable fleet and put his wife's brother, John Ducas, in charge of it. For once, this mission proved entirely successful. John besieged Chaka's forces on Lesbos until they fled, retook the various Aegean islands, and then sailed on to restore order on Crete and Cyprus. But Chaka himself was not captured. He remained at Smyrna, and the threat of his fleet loomed in Alexius's imagination, as the situation in Anatolia itself began to deteriorate further. That same year, 1092, news came that the Seljuk Sultan Malik Shah was dead. This would turn out to be a fatal blow to Roman pretensions in Anatolia. Never again would Baghdad be in a position to offer such generous aid to the ailing Byzantines. Civil war promptly broke out in the former caliphate, and over the course of the next three years, Turkic groups in Anatolia began to seize Roman towns. Fear of the Sultan had kept their ambitions in check. Now, with no retribution coming, there was nothing to stop them. Tarsus, Mopsuestia, and the other towns of Cilicia were captured by Turkic tribes between 1094 and 5. While back at Nicaea, Abul Qasim broke his agreements and seized the neighbouring city of Nicomedia. And though he was dead by 1095, his successor showed no sign of weakness. This hopeless position is what prompted Alexius to look west for the kind of manpower he would need if he was going to retake Nicaea and actually campaign in Anatolia again. But before we get there, we need to cover other events in the European theatre. Next time, Alexius has a series of nasty confrontations with the Pechenegs to negotiate before he can truly think of Anatolia again. Of course, Alexius is not the only character in our story. There were many other Byzantines horrified by news from their former homeland. Men and women at court were talking often of what needed to be done to restore the Asian provinces, and top of their to-do list was to find a new emperor. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Listen to this Acast show ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.